Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Our guest on this episode of Chatter was Dr. David Belk, author of the book, The Great American Healthcare Scam, How Kickbacks, Collusion, and Propaganda Have Exploded Healthcare Costs in the United States. In this eye-opening conversation, we covered the massive discrepancy between billing costs and what the insurance companies pay out, why there is no cost sheet for procedures in the United States, why insurance companies benefit from and encourage price rises for procedures and equipment, and why procedures and medication can often be cheaper if you choose not to go through your insurance company. That includes the story of a woman who was initially told she would have to pay over $1,000 for 40 pills and eventually bought them for $41 at Costco. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So here's Dr. David Belk. So welcome to the show. And um, do you want to tell us a little bit about, about why you wanted to, to write your book and, and, and the, the reasons that you feel it's important to, to get the word out about it? Okay, so um, here in the United States, uh, you know, just practicing in healthcare, uh, I noticed even decades ago that there was a huge amount of almost disinformation about healthcare costs in terms of the fact that uh, medical bills have little reflection on uh, what's paid on those medical bills by insurance companies. And not only that, uh, what's paid on the medical bills often don't even seem to correlate with the services provided. Uh, Prescription medications, uh, people were often paying far more than they had to, for example, for generic prescription medications, simply because they had insurance. And if they didn't have insurance, it was even worse. There There were a lot of irregularities that I had been noticing for years and years and years. And about nine years ago, I thought, well, I should put all this information out on a website. People would find out about it and suddenly demand change. That's what I thought nine years ago. So I started this website called The True Cost of Healthcare, um, I guess for lack of a better name, where I literally put all the information on actual healthcare costs I could get a hold of. And it was quite difficult at first because a lot of the, we, we have a phenomenally opaque business in uh, U.S. healthcare in terms of how much any procedure or service ought to cost. Nobody seems to know this, including many of the doctors or providers of these services. And I thought, well, this will catch on and people will demand change. Um, I was rather naive at the time. And, um, you know, as, as, as the website itself gets more and more volumes of information, uh, I began to realize that it's way too much for most people to wade through even if they want to. And so uh, about three years ago, with the help of my brother, you know, to make the book more readable, we both kind of co-wrote it. Uh, I, I wrote, I started writing a book, which I released last March called The Great American Healthcare Scam, uh, How Kickbacks, Collusion, and Propaganda Have Exploded Healthcare Costs in the United States. And it's meant to be a more cohesive narrative of exactly what's going on in the many industries in healthcare to take advantage of uh, people in the United States, specifically. Okay. 
Now, you, you mentioned uh, the, the issues with billing costs. Are you familiar with the work done by, by Sarah Cliff at, at Vox.com? Uh, the project she was doing in trying to highlight the the different the, the vastly different costs of for example like just basic items if you're got got a child and trying to go in and get like a, like a shot or anything is so dependent on like your insurance company and whether that hospital is covered by your your insurance um plan well okay so I, I, I go by it using a different approach. Okay. First of all, billing charges in the United States are works of fiction. That is something that people need to understand first and foremost. So if you're looking at billing charges, you're looking at something that no one was ever meant to pay. All right. It's a little like uh, examining uh, wrestling moves in the WWE. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's, 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 yes. <laughs> it's so completely fictitious and unrelated to the actual payments most of the time, unless they're specifically used against you for a variety of reasons that I highlight in my book. And so to, to illustrate how fictitious these billing charges are, uh, in the very first chapter of my book, you know, titled A Fantastic Deal, I give you four medical bills. Two are from outpatient surgical centers, two are from hospitals. All right. The fir very first medical bill is for uh, someone who simply received a minor procedure, a sinus surgery from an outpatient surgery center that lasted maybe about an hour. And the billing charge is phenomenally outrageous it's ninety seven thousand dollars which i guess whoa, in the uk whoa, would be about eighty thousand pounds right however i note on the very next line that the insurance company got a discount of ninety two thousand dollars more than ninety two thousand dollars or roughly 95 percent of the bill in other words roughly 95 percent of this insanely high bill was not paid to anyone by anyone and the insurance paid about four thousand dollars which is probably more than you know it was worth and the patient paid like another well, actually i think the insurance paid like thirty five hundred dollars and the patient paid like nine hundred dollars for a total of forty four hundred dollars paid on this bill of more than ninety seven thousand dollars in other words five percent of this bill was ever paid by anyone to anyone and even considering that even considering that massive discount you had a payment of over $4,000 for a procedure that barely lasted an hour. In the second bill that I put in my book, and the bill is actually there for all to see, it's a patient of mine who had a hysterectomy at a hospital, a local hospital uh, near where I practice in Berkeley, California. And she was hospitalized for three days. Obviously, you would expect more than, you know, you would for uh, a one-hour outpatient procedure. She was hospitalized for three days. The billing charge by the hospital to the insurance company was roughly $86,000, which is surprisingly less than you had for the first bill of $97,000 for a one-hour procedure. The payment on that bill, total payment, was about $13,000 or about 15% of the bill. Again, Almost the entire billing charge was deducted by the insurance company, not paid by anyone to anyone, right? I have a third bill. 
you know, uh, a few paragraphs later where uh, a person, friend of mine, was hospitalized for uh, two days at Stanford for an abdominal surgery, not entirely, not incredibly complicated. She was home in two days. Again, nearly six, six figures is billed for this two-day hospitalization, $91,000. So you got three bills, one outpatient surgery, outpatient surgical procedure, two, a three-day hospitalization, third is a two-day hospitalization. All the billing charges are just about the same, $97,000, $86,000, $91,000. In this third bill, for no explicable reason, 60% of the bill is paid and only 40% is deducted. Nearly $60,000 is paid. And then the fourth bill, which really throws you into a crazy category is for an outpatient procedure again, and it's done by the exact same, same hospital as in the uh, second bill. Both patients have United Healthcare. So you have two patients went to Altabates Hospital in Berkeley, California. Both patients had hysterectomies. Both patients had United Healthcare as their insurance. All right. The difference was in the second case, it was an outpatient procedure where she was home by noon the same day. In the first case, it was a three-day hospitalization. Altabase Hospital bills United Healthcare more than twice as much for the three-day hospitalization as they do for the outpatient procedure, which you'd expect. I mean, both are insane amounts. $86,000 for the three-day hospitalization, $41,000 for the outpatient procedure. But United Healthcare inexplicably agrees to more than twice the payment for the outpatient procedure where the woman's home by noon the same day as they did for the three-day hospitalization. In other words, $29,000 is paid for the outpatient procedure where she's home by noon the same day. Only $13,000 was paid by United Healthcare to Altabase Hospital for the three-day hospitalization. You can't make sense of that. And that's the point. You're not supposed to make sense out of that. One of the major issues with healthcare in the US is the way the system is set up. It is nearly impossible to put an exact value on any medical service because payments are so random. It isn't just that billing charges are all insanely high. The average billing charge in the United States for any medical service is three to three to five times the average payment for those medical services. But outside of Medicare, which has a very standard set of payments for every medical service based on region, all other insurance payments are chaotic, random, impossible to predict. The hospitals and the providers themselves have no idea how much they will be paid to treat any particular patient on any for any given you know medical service, and that makes the system far more opaque than you could ever imagine. It isn't just that you could somehow get a hold of the secret price list and 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 hack the system and see how much is really paid for everything. That list doesn't exist. So is there is there like a reason for the the vast like discrepancy between like what is billed for and and what is paid for like is there is there some reason is it completely Is there random? a reason providers do it or is there a reason insurance companies uh encourage it 
both? Ah, two separate questions. Yeah. Well, Providers but, do it because they have no idea how much they'll get paid for any okay. given service. So why is in not? general, you in general, you don't know how much you'll get paid for any given service. And so by underbilling, you'll shortchange yourself. Most insurance companies aren't going to pay you more than you ask. If there's no penalty for overbilling and no way of knowing how much you'll get paid. In other words, if you see a, if a doctor sees a patient in their office and bills $300 for the service and the insurance company is willing to pay $90 for that service, then the doctor will get $90. If the doctor only bills $75 and the insurance company were willing to pay $90, well, the doctor only gets $75, right? So there's no penalty for overbilling. There's no penalty for overcharging. But if you underbill, you shortchange yourself. And so generally in a system that's so chaotic and so random and, you know, and so unpredictable, most providers have simply decided, let's put an astronomical charge on every service and see what we get paid. So no one, so do the insurance companies have an idea of what they are willing to pay for things or are they just like guessing based on what is billed and what they think they can get away with paying. Well, let's, 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 let's break that down a little bit. It's a bit more complicated. Okay. First of all, insurance companies in general benefit from higher prices. Money goes through them and they keep a cut of whatever amount of money goes through them. The more expensive everything is, the more money they keep in general, right? If you keep 10% off the top of every of every dollar spent in an industry, then the more spent in that industry, the more that 10% is. 10% of $100 billion is a lot more than 10% of $20 billion, right? That's just math. So insurance companies in general benefit from higher prices, all right? If they are the universal middleman in all transactions, which they are in healthcare in the United States, then the higher prices are in general, the more they will benefit in general. Okay. So it is to their advantage to encourage higher prices. All right. The, the second part of that is that if nobody has any idea how much anything ought to cost, they will never know when they are being overcharged, which sets up a system in which people can be systematically overcharged on a regular basis without ever even suspecting. And that is really fundamental to healthcare because what it allows, what, what, are, what it does is it sets up a system that allows people to drive up prices almost randomly yet systematically in a in a way that you know prices will always be going up which again benefits the insurance companies and nobody suspects why they are paying so much they know they're paying a lot they don't know who to blame and that makes people feel genuinely genuinely helpless and unable to address any of the issues and when they do address the issues they're usually looking in the wrong place which again benefits the insurance companies who keep saying, hey, don't look at me. Look at all these bills we have to pay. And if you see these gargantuan bills all of the time, which the insurance companies are doing everything they can to encourage, then you suddenly say, well, gosh, no wonder the ins my insurance costs so much. Right. And so if you have a high deductible 
and you're paying for that CT scan yourself out of pocket, it's, it's entirely likely you'll pay five times as much for that CT scan as you could just for, uh, you know, calling a local imaging center and offering cash. That happens all the time. Really? Really. In fact, it is very common for people in the United States to pay more in their co-pays or their deductibles for a, medic a medication or a medical service if they use their insurance than if they don't use their insurance. Unfortunately, most people don't know this. So, for example, people will come to my office all of the time. I mean every day. I mean every day. Okay. And it might be a new patient and they'll have, say, high blood pressure. And I'll ask them, okay, you know, maybe they're on a medication like amlodipine, very standard blood pressure medication. And I'll ask them, how much do you pay for your amlodipine? And they'll say, well, I have good insurance. I pay, you know, uh, $10 a month. So they buy 30 pills for $10. And I show them that uh, many local pharmacies will sell them a full year supply of the medication, 365 pills for a cash price of $20, meaning they were paying $120 a year for a medication that they could have purchased for $20 a year because the pharmacy itself only pays about 1.2 cents a pill for amlodipine. Wow. Well, I mean, it's true everywhere. It's true in the UK too. I mean, it's not, it, generic medications on average cost pennies per dose. Well, and we, we have seven, a lot of those generic medications on offer in, in our supermarkets, um, just like standard, like paracetamol or ibuprofen or just like basic like pain relief drugs or things like that. That's Well, the, yeah, those are the over-the-counter ones, but even the prescription generic, prescription generic medications do not on average cost much any more than over-the-counter generic medications. So uh, your generic lisinopril or amlodipine or torvastatin really doesn't cost your pharmacy any more than their generic paracetamol, uh, ibuprofen, or, you know, naproxen. Okay. I did not know In that. other words, and yeah, well, most people don't. And seven out of eight prescriptions filled in the United States and probably in the UK are for generic medications, meaning the vast majority of prescription drugs bought and sold in any developed country, the vast majority of prescription drugs are pennies per dose. Now, the brand name medications are a very vastly different story. Here in the United States, far more than any other country. Here in the United States, if you want that brand name Norvask, which is the brand name version of the amlodipine, don't count on paying pennies a pill Pharmacies themselves pay about $9 a pill for that. So you can't buy it for less than, you know, nine, you know, uh, $300 for a month's supply. All right. And so the same medication, you know, which can be purchased generically for pennies a pill usually costs anywhere from, you know, five to $20 and sometimes more than $100 a pill when it's brand name. I open, you know, I open my book up with the story. Uh, an actual story of a patient of mine. Uh, she got everything in writing, so the receipts are right there in the introduction. I prescribe her a, mi a generic migraine medication. She'd had migraines, you know, most of her life. And she, this medication works very well for her. And since it's a generic medication, even though she takes a few pills a month, I prescribe her 40 pills. She goes to the local Walgreens, which is a local uh, pharmacy here in the United States, 
And they tell her first that her insurance will not cover that medication. And if she wishes to purchase it cash, it will cost her $1,500, all right, for 40 pills. And so just to be nice, I say, okay, well, I'll fill out the authorization to get our insurance to reconsider and decide to try to cover the medication. So the very next day, her insurance company agrees to cover it, okay? And I use cover loosely. They say, well, instead of paying $37 a pill, $1,500, you know, for 40 pills, we'll sell her 10 pills. We'll allow her to purchase 10 pills for a copay of $168, nearly $17 a pill. And I say, forget Walgreens, forget your insurance, drive down the street to your local Costco, which is, you know, a large, uh, you know, store here in the United States and tell them you don't have insurance. She buys all 40 pills for a cash price of $41. In other words, a dollar a pill was the cash price. Okay. But if she used her insurance at Walgreens, it would have been $17 a pill. This is how insurance works in the United States every single day. They have a, you know, they bottleneck inexpensive services. They routinely bottleneck inexpensive services and make them appear far more expensive than they really are so as to drive up prices overall and give the impression that everything in healthcare is far too expensive for anyone to be able to afford without the help of their insurance company. This this is truly blowing my mind a little bit. Like I, I I thought I was I thought I was like well 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 read at least on the scale of just corruption and overcharging in the U.S. healthcare system. But no, nope, nobody you, is no you're because <laughs> I I I find it really interesting and I I would listen to um Vox's the Weeds podcast quite often and they talk a lot about different options for healthcare systems and costs. And uh, I, I feel like I've got a reasonable grasp on, on I thought at least anyway, the reasonable grasp on, on why it was so expensive. But would you say this? Well, most people, most people look at our healthcare system from 30,000 feet and assume that everything that's going on in the trenches is at least trying to be reasonable. And that's where they get it wrong. They don't look at the details, what's really going on in the trenches. And this is why, well, this is why I think my book offers a rather unique perspective. Unfortunately, it's very, very difficult to convince people that you have a unique perspective until they read the book, which makes it a bit of a catch-22. Um you know, the the subject of healthcare in the United States is almost, you know, it's a rather saturated market. Everyone has something to say, but almost everybody is following the same storyline of from 30,000 feet. Well, these billing charges are way too high. Well, that's why everything's so expensive. They don't realize what the, you know, what really is driving all of this and why these billing charges have been driven so high. One of the things, one of the few things that almost nobody talks about in U.S. healthcare that I think is one of the biggest issues that ought to be a central topic. For example, here in the United States, if you're going to get health insurance and you don't have a, a, a public form of health insurance like Medicare or Medicaid, 
you're going to get it from your employer almost exclusively. All right. So in other words, rather than purchasing your own health insurance, you get it as an as a ben, as an employee benefit, right? If your employer is so kind to provide it. Yeah. All right. What most people don't realize is that the employer sponsored insurance here in the United States doesn't really use your insurance company to pay for any of your health care. Most employer sponsored insurance in the United States the employers themselves have been talked by the insurance company into self-insuring. In other words, the employer covers all medical costs for their employees out of their own pocket. And the insurance company does nothing more than negotiate prices and do the bureaucratic work. All right. And the reason that employers have been talked into this, or the reason that they think it's a good idea when it's not, is that they assume, well, well, first of all, it appears less expensive on the outset. Uh, employers pay an average of about 20 to $30 per employee per month for uh, these administrative services that the insurance company gives, as opposed to, you know, here in the United States, uh, actual health insurance costs anywhere from three to $500 per person per month, right? Which is a lot more expensive. And the employer thinks that by doing this, by paying their own bills, they're cutting out the middleman, which is what it appears to be. Unfortunately, the way these employer-sponsored uh, health insurance uh, systems are structured, even though the employer pays all of the bills, the insurance company decides how much is paid on each bill and to whom and for what. They have absolute authority, even though they have no skin in the game. In other words, the insurance company has been granted effectively an expense account where they can spend whatever they want on whatever they want with almost no oversight because, believe it or not, the insurance companies give the employers almost no feedback at all on what medical services were covered or how much was spent on each medical service. The employer simply assumes the insurance company is getting them the best deal on everything and doing everything they're supposed to. Well, I just told you, insurance companies benefit from higher prices. So guess what happens to prices on all of these uh, employer-sponsored insurance, right? I mean, they explode, obviously, because all of, this, all of these financial transactions are done completely in the dark. This is a completely unregulated business because it's not actual insurance. So it's not observed by anyone. This is crazy. Is this like, in your opinion, the like largest cause of the, of rising healthcare costs in America? Is that, is, is this just like the, the massive part of the iceberg? It's no one, one of sees? the many, it's one of the many, it's one of the many causes. The, if you were to look at, a fundamental overriding reason that costs are going up, it's in general, complete, opac complete opacity and complete lack of regulation. Everything is occurring in the dark and everybody who can raise prices will, right? I mean, why wouldn't they? Oh no, of course not. If, they, if it makes sense for them to just- to, Precisely. If they're making more money off of ra raising prices and they have zero, they're not- 
involved in in any like moral dilemma where they think well you know we've signed up here to help people like a hospital would they're just there for the profit when did this when did this become such a prevalent um issue in in american healthcare has it has it been going on for for decades are you talking about are you talking about are you talking about employer employer self-insuring it's just just this this system that seems to have evolved where there is such opacity of of billing and where insurance companies are so powerful and seem to have like a, uh, um, uh, become these middlemen who have all the power with no responsibility when did this start really well i think i think the insurance companies have been universal middlemen in healthcare almost uh well probably for at least the last four decades um, they've been leveraging it more and more. I mean, employer-sponsored healthcare in the United States is uh, an artifact of World War II, believe it or not. Here in the United States, um, well, there was no such thing as health insurance practically until uh, the, the well, the 1940s. Really, I mean, it only it only started in in, in the late 1920s. The idea of of, of health insurance covering healthcare costs. And it really started to take off in the 1940s when there were uh, price and wage fee- price and wage freezes during World War II that uh, made it very, very difficult. And of course, there was a labor shortage because so many people were fighting the war. And so it made it very difficult for employers to attract uh, better workers. And so they started offering health insurance as a benefit of being an employee. And, you know, it sounded like a good thing. And then in 1943, the uh, the IRS here in the United States uh, said not only that, if employers offer health insurance as a benefit or any benefits they offer is tax deductible so that employers are suddenly able to deduct their health insurance premiums from uh, their income taxes whereas uh, the average person couldn't. And so it was actually less expensive for an employer to offer it than it was for a person to buy it on their own behalf. And the health insurance liked that a lot better too because employers in general were more stable customers than individuals. And so the idea of employer of, of, of in the United States, health insurance being an employee benefit as opposed to something you buy on your own simply took off and evolved and even by the 1960s became i think by the 1960s it was already the majority of the health insurance offered in the united states so it's not something that's just appeared it's it's like been a gradual slow creep since since the well since the war essentially okay yeah, very very little of what i discuss in my book you know is anything new it's just grown into becoming uh, the horrible monster it is today through almost a complete lack of uh, oversight for decades and decades and decades. Is it possible to have, in your opinion, a, a, a cost-efficient and effective healthcare system with insurance companies involved? Because to me, it seems like it just provides this huge extra cost that you have to some the money to pay all of the insurance actuaries and everyone that's going to negotiate on prices and the people who are going to contact 
all the clients that for me that that just creates this entire extra industry of costs well, do, well private do, insurance private insurance will always add a little extra cost i mean keep in mind we have private insurance for just about everything i assume you know you have it for your home for your car for for, for everything else yeah and and most of the time it's more functional um a very well-regulated private insurance industry is probably, you know, nominally more expensive than any sort of public insurance industry uh, for for a variety of reasons. But that doesn't mean that it's prohibitively expensive. I mean, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, France, Germany, and Taiwan, uh, Singapore all have uh, private health insurance. They do, yeah. That yeah, exactly. And they seem to function okay with it, but they're highly regulated. Here in the United States, it's not only completely opaque, it's completely outside of uh, just about any regula regulation whatsoever. I mean, it's absolute wild west here, which is part of the reason it's so completely dysfunctional. They're doing everything they, they, they are because they can. No one's stopping them. No one's even looking at them. Why do you think there is or has been so much resistance to the passing of single payer, payer in America? Well, too many people would lose from it. Obviously, the insurance companies would be made obsolete. And these are, you know, companies that make hundreds of billions of dollars a year. So they have a say in the matter. Um, all of the people who are currently, for whatever reason, overpaid in healthcare and many Many of those entities don't even understand how or why they're being overpaid, but they do have a sense that they would lose if um, if the system were enacted. And then there's a complexity. Um, I mean, certainly we have Medicare and people say, well, why don't you just adapt Medicare for all? And on paper, that sounds easy, but what you're doing is you are reconfiguring uh, the entire healthcare system to phase out one system and accommodate for a new system for a large number of people who didn't have it before. And, 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 and part of the problem is not just the size of our healthcare, you know, system, which by the way, we spend more on healthcare each year than the entire GDP of the United Kingdom. Okay. So, so, so just, <laughs> we spend three and a half trillion dollars a year on healthcare. All right, more than three trillion of that simply goes into uh, personal healthcare. You know, uh, individual medical expenses. All right, and so size matters sometimes, but you also have the fact that healthcare can't be stopped or slowed down in any way. Any hiccups, you know, any hiccups that invariably go with major reforms could be disastrous. And of course, it would be disastrous for any politician who enacts it should it happen. And unforeseen hiccups are always going to happen whenever you're trying to retool an entire system, especially one as vast and complicated as the United States healthcare system. And so there is just a lot of, um, you know, difficulty in understanding how much would have to go into even a simple fix, like saying, okay, let's get rid of the insurance companies, which the insurance companies are not going to like. Mm, and I again, these are companies that are worth hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars a year. 
and say, well, let's adapt Medicare for everything. All right. People just assume, well, you just have to take out this one. And, you know, it, it, it'd be a little bit like, oh, I don't know, uh, moving the country of France, you know, uh, 3000 kilometers to the east or something. I mean, you just it's it, it, it's just such a huge, huge um, issue simply because you're dealing with such a vast and complex system. You know, you're not just talking about paying your local doctor. You're talking about all of the interactions of all of the physicians and all of the hospitals in a very, very complex uh, industry. Where and well, no, continue your point. Sorry, and I'll, I'll ask after. Well, no, it's just, you know, one of the analogies and the fact that the, the healthcare system has to continue on smoothly. I always say. Imagine, you know, to use a uh, an analogy in, in, in auto mechanics, I mean, most auto mechanics would tell you it's very easy to change the spark plugs on a car, right? You take off the wires, unscrew the spark plugs, put in new ones, make sure all the wires are put in the right spark plug, but that's about it, right? Try changing the spark plugs on a car while it's going 80 kilometers an hour down the highway, okay? Our healthcare system cannot stop or slow down while it's being, you know, fixed. And so any and all fixes have to be done while it's functioning at full capacity. And so, so the idea of simply taking out an entire payment system and, you know, putting in a new one, at least new to all of the people who would, you know, have lost the old payment system is a bit more technically difficult than most people would think just by saying, hey, why don't we just get rid of the private insurance and put in Medicare for all? I mean, uh, easier said than done. Is there a way to do it? Or is there a way to make some changes know. to the US system that would make it slightly less horrifying or oh. expensive? <laughs> well, you know, that's the whole point that I'm saying is that first thing you have to do is put all financial transactions in the open. I mean, that is first and foremost, understand what you're trying to fix before you fix it. And right now there is such a phenomenal misunderstanding of health, how healthcare is financed in the United States, uh, largely because most of the finances are occur in the dark. All right. Until you bring every single financial transaction out into the open and look at where all of the money is going, how it is being spent. You don't know what you're fixing, mm. right? I mean, you got to open the hood to that car before you start, you know, messing with the spark plugs or even deciding, you know, what, what needs to be fixed. Well, it's going 80 kilometers an hour down the highway. You know, if you can't even see what you're trying to fix, how do you fix it? And, and the other thing is there are a large number of conflicts of interest and you know what appear what appears to be flat out fraud going on in healthcare that I highlight in my book that could easily be fixed. I mean, the price of all generic medications is totally knowable in the United States. There, you know, uh, Medicare, the people who run Medicare, CMS, they put out a list of how much pharmacies pay for every medication they purchase every single week. Okay, everyone should be able to know that that atorvastatin that they, you know, purchased uh, actually cost their local pharmacy six cents a pill. 
I mean, that's knowable information. So if you pay a $50 monthly copay on it, you're really getting ripped off. Okay, people should be able to know how much services in the United States ought to cost. Bring all that information out. The more informed people are, uh, the more they can change it, you know, in a reasonable way. And uh, the less likely they are, you know, a, a huge part of the problem is most people don't even know that they're being overcharged, let alone by how much. Was that, Fix that. Yeah. Was that something you were aware of before writing your book or was that something that, that you discovered in the process? Well, like I say, the book came from uh, my website, which I started way back in 2011. And so uh, I began writing my book thinking I need a different approach to putting this information out there. And there were certain details that I learned along the lines of, you know, writing my book because, you know, nearly every week I find something out that shocks even me about how uh, ridiculous the system is. But, you know, the problem with that is that, uh, there is so much fraud in our system that it's almost like getting to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it just, it just keeps piling on because as the system becomes more opaque, more and more people are there to defend the opacity and to benefit from it. So it, it you know, it's been snowballing for a while. Are are you optimistic about the 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 chances of? turning the ship around? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's uh, like I say, my, my entire purpose has been, you know, less about proposing specific solutions than itemizing all the details of the problem. I've always said you cannot fix a problem you don't understand. And currently in the United States, most people who are trying to fix the problem seem woefully misinformed about the the details of the problem they're trying to fix. Why do you think that is? Is that just groupthink, seeing the wrong, like looking at the wrong thing? Or is that obfuscation on the part of um, the insurance companies and, and big pharmaceutical firms? Or like, where is that? Yes. Misdirected attention All of the above. coming from. Okay. <laughs> All of the above. There's a huge amount of disinformation. There's a huge amount of misdirection. I mean, you know, you have, a, you have an underlying assumption, a fundamental assumption that insurance companies are always out to be parsimonious and to save money everywhere they can. That's wrong. All right. And if you, if you start with a fundamental assumption that that is 180 degrees from reality, then right then and there, you're trying to fix the wrong problem. Okay. You pe people assume that insurance companies behave the way they're doing. You know, they're trying to deny care. They're trying to make everything more difficult because, well, it's costing them money and they don't want to spend money. That's completely, you know, the opposite of what's, what the truth is. And the other assumption is that the other assumption is that all of these goods and services are intrinsically expensive. 
okay, there is no way that these these can be offered at a lower price. And so the the job of the insurance company is to, you know, parsimoniously dole out uh, limited goods and services in the most judicious way. When in fact, what they're doing is they're bottlenecking what ought to be inexpensive services um, entirely for the sake of driving up their costs, making them less available and, uh, you know, profiting from that, you know, from the bottlenecking. You know, do you think that the, the, the pandemic has, has made people reconsider whether the for-profit healthcare system is something that they want to continue with in America? Uh, the, or... the pandemic has simply distracted people. I mean, people are more afraid of uh, catching coronavirus than what's done about it. And, and you know, it's 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 a... The pandemic itself is less about our healthcare system than it is about uh, how woefully poor our public policy has become in the last three years, all right? I mean, coronavirus is a disease for which our healthcare system doesn't have a whole lot of answers. I mean, we're here in the United States, we can barely even test for it, but we certainly have no treatment for it. We have no vaccine for it. So it's less about healthcare than it is about, you know, staying at home and hoping something comes up. And so right now, the overall uh, impact of it on our healthcare system or the overall impact of our healthcare system on it, other than the fact that there are a lot of, you know, very overworked healthcare workers in certain regions, you know, that's all you hear about. Okay, now I want to change um, direction just a little bit and, and get into some things that are slightly, slightly not quite related to, to what we've been discussing, but definitely still there. Do do you think that healthcare should be considered a right for people? Um, you know, I I don't see why not. I and it depends on to what extent. Um, obviously, you know, there's 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 a certain level of basic healthcare that 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 ought to be a right to people, and there's no reason to deny it, especially since, as I pointed out, it's inexpensive. Uh, beyond that, you know, uh, where do you draw the line? on what's a right and what's a privilege, um, you know, different people will differ. And I don't really, uh, I, I don't consider that, that, that question too much beyond, you know, a, a lot of the basic stuff that keeps people healthy, like, uh, you know, prevention of heart disease, prevention of a lot of cancers, certainly treatment of a lot of cancers. But then at a certain point, there are healthcare services that obviously are luxuries, like certain cosmetic procedures, right? And so at a certain point, you shouldn't say that all healthcare should be a should be considered a privilege, but I suppose it, 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 you know, you have to draw a line somewhere at what services do you consider a privilege? And that's always going to be a matter of contention. Um, why do you think there's um, such a lack of focus, I find anyway, in, in the UK, and I would say it's probably fairly similar in the US, on the idea of preventative medicine, where just focusing on making sure people are healthier generally it reduces like the cost to a, to a healthcare system. Like, for example, South Korea have dealt really well with the, with the pandemic because 
well, arguably because they have one of the healthiest populations um, on in the world in terms of they have the lowest obesity rate, the most, the highest like or the most nutritious diet on average, and they have the longest life expectancy as well. Well, preventive medicine is about ninety five percent public policy and about five percent actual medicine at your doctor's level, right? Well, right. And so, obviously, you know what determines public policy is politics and what people want. Um, I mean, South Korea dealt with the pandemic much quickly, much more quickly and much more effectively. My understanding is because they were far more exposed to SARS and MERS, which, you know, uh, they didn't deal with as well, but that kind of um, primed them for it. Mm, that's and also so a huge, they huge were factor. Yeah. Right. But 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 the thing is, when, when, when you talk about public health, all right, I, I, there's only so much a doctor can actually do. I mean, certainly we can tell people to quit smoking, but it's, you know, up to them to listen to us. We can screen for various uh, risk factors, disease processes, whatever, for which we know that early intervention makes a difference. And for the most part, doctors do that. Um, I mean, that is that is a. Uh, a major focus of our day-to-day job, but at the individual doctor level, you know, uh, preventive care beyond that, you know, we don't really have any more, any more power over than say your auto mechanic has, you know, uh, influence on how safe a driver person is or how good the roads are. Right. I, I mean, we only deal with the patient as they come into our office and there's only so much we can do. So, yeah, I mean, you know, public policy, obviously, uh, you know, part of the problem is there's a huge amount of money in unhealthy activities. And so there's only so much will to truly regulate those or to discourage them. Right. And so doctors don't have a lot of uh, ways of pushing back against that. So if there was... One thing you could could say warn people about the the issues of like an unregulated healthcare market. What would you say it would be? Because in the in the UK, there's a lot of talk about about post Brexit. We are that there's quite a few of the big pharmaceutical and insurance companies in the US who are very much looking forward to trying to get access to our healthcare system and to to start privatizing quite a, a hefty portion of it. And and people never seem to realize the 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 massive problems that that could cause. And well, read I, my book. I, read your book. There you go. Well, if you, <laughs> that's an even better. That's that's probably the best response you could give there, right? <laughs> Please buy a copy. Buy, I could sell a few. Yeah. You know, I might sell more copies in the UK than I am currently in the US. Who knows? Well, you never know. Uh, no, I mean it. It it serves as a warning for uh, how bad it can get. And, and the fundamental problem, again, is not even so much who's doling out the health care or who's doling out the finances, but the opacity. Anytime you have a system that exists as, that in so much darkness the way our health care system does, you will have people who will figure out ways to subvert and corrupt it. Okay. I mean, uh, sunlight's the best disinfectant. And right now we have absolutely zero in our healthcare system. And that's, you know, uh, it makes things, everything worse steadily. 
and our healthcare system has been decaying for decades. So if you have a 100% publicly run healthcare system, you assume there's a certain amount of oversight because the people will get very, very angry if their politicians allow too much corruption to enter into it. But that doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. You know, if the government becomes corrupt enough, then the government-run healthcare system can become equally corrupt. What was the biggest surprise for you of writing your book? Was there something that, that, that you came across that, that you weren't expecting to, or like in terms of like your, your own thoughts on, on what you were writing about, or just like some massive realization that you came to in your research? Well, like I say, the, the, the research had been going on for, for years before I even started writing the book. Um, and so, although I still get surprises they're not nearly as you know jaw dropping as some of the ones that I fell into maybe five six years ago when I was I was still you know uh, young and naive and expecting any of this to to uh, you know be uh, uh, on the level. Uh, I, I suppose the uh, complete inability to find a publisher or find even a literary agent who was uh, had more than a passing interest. Um, I guess you, I've did discovered you really struggle to get this, this published. I published it myself. I had to self-publish because that, Paid that, for everything. that wasn't because no one, that was because no one would take it, not just for your own choice or freedom. I couldn't find a literary agent. Uh, I found a couple who had returned my calls, but a few of them, you know, I, I mean, I could say that the, uh, publishing industry is almost as dysfunctional or maybe even more dysfunctional than our healthcare industry. But if you're trying to get a book published, and it's not about, you know, sex or celebrities or self-help or something like that. Uh, basically, the first question any literary agent or any publishing company would ask you is, have you published a book in the past that sold a lot of copies? And if the answer to that question is no, there won't be a second question. And so, you know, I thought that I had all of these earth-shattering revelations and it doesn't really matter if you can't get anyone to look at them. So do you think they just aren't interested in, in trying to sell? Because, right, if I was a publishing agent and someone came to me and go, we've got this huge, like, expose on or this this fantastic explanation of, of why healthcare costs have gone awry, why no one realizes the true true reasons for the for the rising cost of healthcare. And here's all these like issues that I've highlighted and discovered that like I think need to be need to have light shed on them. I would go, okay, that sounds like a unique, interesting perspective that, that could potentially sell maybe not loads but you you, uh, you know there's i can at least see the 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 value in in, in yeah there was the a time content. when i thought that too there was have a time you, when i thought that too and you just uh, become i disillusioned completely by it well no i just haven't found anybody you know people who read my book see the merit but then they have to read it first right and that's your catch 22 because you know, the U.S. healthcare system, what's wrong with the U.S. healthcare system is almost a saturated market. How do you prove, without getting someone to read the book, that this book has something to offer that really is different from what everyone else says? And that, you know, um, reading a book is a time commitment. 
And if on the very surface, it doesn't look like it has anything new to offer, then no one's going to open the cover. It becomes uh, very, very difficult. And again, there is so much disinformation on the healthcare system and so many perspectives, a lot of it just, you know, uh, for the sake of obfuscation, that it becomes uh, really, really difficult to say, look what I have to offer. You know, read the first three pages. And, uh, you know, once you get past that, people are like, okay, okay, I can see why this is different. Okay, how can I make any money off of this? Which is, you know, the next barrier, you know, even if you convinced me, how do I convince everyone else? And it, part of it is I'm, I'm not echoing the group think. I am saying something different. And that takes people a long time to warm up to. Yeah, people can be uh, resistant to change, I think is the best way to put it. But um, Or resistant to new ideas. Resistant to new ideas as well. It's the, well, I, I, was, I was more hopeful about six months ago for the future of American healthcare and just for the future of America than I am I'm now. But um, <laughs> is there anything you want to leave us with? I think I, I have another call here in about 10 minutes. So is there like final thoughts you'd like to like to say anything we didn't cover or anything you'd like to plug aside from your book, which I will put the description for in the link below for anyone who has wanting to order it and hasn't already gone to Amazon and clicked it? Well, um, I guess I would say that uh, even though this is about the U.S. healthcare system, uh, you brought up the fact that uh, the U.S. healthcare system is trying to make its ways into a lot of other healthcare systems. And there are a lot of people in countries like yours who would be very receptive to it because they could make a lot of money off of a system like that. And uh, my, word, my, uh, my word of warning is beware. Uh, the entire uh, focus of the U.S. healthcare system is corruption for profit. Um, it's a very, very fraudulent system that bottlenecks goods and services that you currently take for take for granted and makes them very difficult to attain and very expensive. And there's virtually no benefit to it whatsoever. Well, hopefully people are going to hear your warning. Hopefully people order your book and, you know, hopefully the world is all sunshine and rainbows come this time next year. So, <laughs> uh, doubt that. <laughs> well, we can be optimistic, but uh, yeah. Well, the November election may change a little, but who knows? I don't know. We'll see. I, mm -hmm. I'm not. I am not optimistic for that. <laughs> I, I I think we're gonna we we got four more years, baby. <laughs> of Trump, yeah, four more years. I think. Oh, he's tanking in the polls. He's he's in fact. There's actually even rumors that he may drop out of the race before the election. He's he's doing so poorly. You see, he's very unpopular here. I I. I would believe you, except he seems like he has been incredibly unpopular for five years, and I don't feel like there's that many more people that hate him. But maybe I'm wrong. There actually, well, 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 there was there was a huge part of what what worked with the Russian campaign that was um, amazingly effective in how sublime it was. Was there was this general belief 
in the United States in 2016 that Donald Trump couldn't possibly win. That was the general belief. In fact, there were uh, polling organizations that gave him like less than 1% chance of winning even as early, you know, even as late as late October. And they said there is no way that Donald Trump could win. Well, if there's no way that Donald Trump can win, then you stop worrying about Donald Trump and you look at the other candidate, Hillary Clinton, and all they talked about were why we didn't like Hillary Clinton. And what this did was it managed to persuade enough people to not show up. Because if you have zero risk of this Donald Trump character, you stop worrying about him and you only worry about that one person you don't like. So it stopped becoming Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. It became Hillary Clinton and all of her faults and why she doesn't deserve what she's inevitably going to get no matter what we do. Do you think there's that's a not going to work this time around? Do you, th do you don't think there's a risk that, that something similar happens? With well, of course, there's a huge risk. <laughs> and everyone's aware of it this time. Nobody could possibly say Donald Trump couldn't win because he already won. And so now everybody is like, how scary will it be if he wins again? And that's the narrative. In fact, it, it's almost the opposite this time. Nobody's talking about Joe Biden. Yeah, well, Joe and Biden's everyone's not talking about. Huh? I was going to say Joe Biden has just been MIA of late. And that's perfect <laughs> because if nobody's talking about Joe Biden and everybody's talking about Donald Trump, then suddenly everybody's talking about how much they hate Donald Trump. And believe me, everybody hates him. And so, yeah, I mean, he is just sinking, sinking, sinking. And, you know, his problems are only going to get worse. And so uh, now the rumor is, will he drop out before the election? And, you know, uh, that's not entirely impossible given his character. I'm not sure. I can see him claiming that he really did win. Leaving the white yeah, but nobody he... here. He's he's alienated the FBI, the CIA, and the military. So who's going to support him? Yeah. Oh no, I don't think it would be. I don't think it's going to be a case of he'll refuse to leave the White House. I think he'll still he'll 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 accept it, but he'll spend the next ten years, the final ten. Well, I don't know how many years he's got left, but the next X number of years of his life, claiming that it was stolen from him. That's what I think. And just like he'll set up this. Little... Well, yeah, I mean, that's always going to happen. But who knows? Um, it's it's uh, it's it's <sighs> things are bad enough here so that uh, who knows? We could be close to hitting bottom. You never know. That could happen. Anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens. See where the roller coaster takes us next. 2020, bring it on. <laughs> um all right. So that's fantastic. Thanks very much for your time. It was a real pleasure, David. No problem. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this show, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.